0: Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 65. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman.
1: Greetings, Christina. How are you?
0: Great. Great. I'm looking Good. forward to rummaging through your bag.
1: <laughs> inside the doctor's <laughs> bag today, huh? Yes, inside
0: yeah. your doctor's <laughs> bag.
1: Yep, that's always an interesting one. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for ways towards optimal health. And today, as Christina already alluded, uh we're going to go inside the doctor's bag where I'm going to talk a little, maybe teach a little, give some current events and Things like that, as we move forward today, and our topic is going to be on viruses or going viral <laughs> and so if uh, you know usually when we have a guest, we always uh invite people to come in and r- write a question or call in, but I assume we can do the same thing when. You and I are just speaking. Oh, absolutely. So if you could give everyone uh, the information.
0: Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, At any time Mm -hmm. during this live presentation, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Be sure to click submit, and I will read that question or comment to Dr. Woolman. Or if you prefer to speak with him yourself, you are very welcome to join us on our conference line. And the number is 323 476-3672. Four seven six three six seven two the i d is six zero seven three nine three pound Thank you, Glenn
1: thanks, Christina. and uh, as you know, whenever we go inside the doctor's bag, you become very important part of the uh episode because you represent every person, of course, so I'll be <laughs> asking you questions along the way to make sure that every person gets it. Now, I think it's to easy to you...
0: represent the virus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I will. Just to make it easier, even for you, The I think the concept is, I know that you usually know the perfect answers and they're always correct. But since you're representing other people, sometimes as a sacrifice, you may pretend that you don't really know and Maybe answer it in a way so that I'll explain it a little better. Isn't that right?
0: I wish I knew the perfect answers. My goodness, I'll definitely be far, far off in galaxy by that point.
1: Well, (laughs) we'll see. Uh, Again, we're going to choose a topic that, uh, you know, has uh, a lot of information in it. And I'm not going to get too deep, I don't think. But you know that I love to talk about cells and the way cells react and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go to a cellular level again, and we're going to talk about uh, viruses today. And uh, I hope that at the end of this, people have some kind of an interesting understanding of it. And then there's a current event going on related to some virus that I want to talk about. So that'll be a public service announcement. (laughs) And then we will uh, talk about ways to uh, maybe prevent uh, viruses and take care of them. And then I even have uh, a health tip today. Oh, fun. At the end. So hopefully we'll get to all of that. So viruses, first of all, a a definition. uh, It comes from the Latin word virus actually means a slimy liquid or a poison. That's how it was known at that point. But uh, there are many controversies about virus. And the first major controversy is even to the... to determine whether a virus is alive or not. So in the definition, according to Webster, uh, an organismic uh, state is characterized by the capacity for metabolism, which means just like us, when we eat food, we can create uh, protein and energy, carbohydrates. We make it all into energy and building blocks. So that's what metabolism is. Also, it's about growth, and we have DNA and RNA, and we grow from a child to an adult. Uh, We also respond and react to stimuli. If somebody puts uh, our finger in something hot, we pull it away. If something says something funny, we laugh, things like that. And finally, reproduction. So with those things in mind, metabolism, growth, uh, stimulus, and reproduction, would you say, Christina, that viruses are alive organisms or not
0: uh far too much alive as far as I'm concerned, if they're going through all those, it might as well be human, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: well, as it turns out, and although this is controversial and and some disagree. They don't believe, some people, some of the scientists believe that because a virus can't exist alone, it has to go into another host cell before mm. it can do most of those things. Uh, most people feel that a virus is not actually alive. Mm. And it's just, um, it's just a little bit of DNA or RNA, which is the genetic coding material. And it's surrounded by some protein and has a little car- uh, lipids things like that. And it isn't really a living organism. It's almost more like a robot that exists. There are other people that believe that it's actually the very first organism in the ecosystem of what we are today. And and they feel that it's some kind of a parasite because it can't live on its own and it, and it requires uh, being in some kind of a host cell. So, at the end of it the answer is it alive is it basically it has some alive properties and it has some non-living properties i think the uh, the computer people uh, would love to think about viruses because they actually are similar to what we speak of when we speak about a computer virus something that it really has to get into the computer and has to then it does it's damage <clears throat> and from uh a point of view let's let's describe a, a virus for a minute let's let's talk about its size for example if because in science we deal in the metric system let me give you a little bit of an idea of the size of a virus if you think about a yardstick which is 36 inches a meter stick would be about almost 40 inches a little over 39 inches Mm-hmm. but the meter system is divided by centimeters essentially <clears throat> so if you took if you had a virus that was uh 1 centimeter in diameter you would be able to fit 100 of these viruses onto a meter stick but they're not 1 centimeter <clears throat> and in fact they're not even a millimeter which would allow them to uh, fit a 1,000 side-by-side on a meter stick. And they're not even uh, what we call a micrometer, which would be a million. You, so they're even smaller than the ability to fit a million. They're actually in the area of a nanometer, which is a billion, which has nine zeros behind the one.
0: Boy, this so is very similar to computers, Glenn. Exactly. Because they've got the little nanobots and everything. <laughs> <It's>
1: exactly. Everything <laughs> is on a nanoscale. So yeah. in essence, to picture this, you could take a, a virus and put uh, one billion of them on that meter stick. So that's wow. about the size of a virus. And bacteria are actually larger than viruses. They're sometimes up to five, five times bigger. So you can see a virus under a microscope, I mean a bacteria under a microscope, but you can't really see a virus under a microscope. Wow. So that gives us, that gives us kind of the size of what we're dealing with now. There are maybe over 3,000 types of viruses, and they're all defined by their genetics and their uh, DNA and their RNA, things like that. So when we talk about viruses, basically most of us think of them, as you suggested a little earlier, they're pretty detrimental to our society. They basically go in and do harm. We've seen examples of this in many ways. We've seen the upper respiratory infections. We've also seen the herpes virus. We've seen the AIDS virus. We've seen the hepatitis virus. These are all different types of viruses that cause major problems to us. Uh, we know that viruses do cause problems, but the, part of the question is, why are they here? Do they have any benefits to mankind? What do you think, Christina?
0: Well, that's always about balance. <clears throat> so I would not know, Glenn. I mean, it's all you know, it, uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I yeah. couldn't even guess away from the well, thought of balance.
1: Yeah. Well, they do a number of things. One, and some of them, not necessarily do we look at them as good, but population control, for example, in our <laughs> in our planet, uh, viruses, you know, have caused uh, certain types of epidemics that have wiped people out. It also provides for genetic diversity. Sometimes, uh, when People are get sick, those are the people that don't reproduce necessarily, mm. uh, so the stronger of the species begin to survive and uh, it also has to do with natural selection, so it 's very complex, but there's a number of other things that viruses have actually done for that for us, and one of them is again another part of the controversy of viruses is where we 're going to see and we're, what we 're hearing about even more and more now is gene therapy. And let me describe what that means a little bit. As we know, the genetic DNA and RNA code for different programs in our body. And what we found is through studying viruses, we were starting to learn. In fact, that's how we learned about the genome and genetic sequences, looking at simple viruses and their simple genetic coding. So we started learning from that sequence and coding to learn the whole process. Now, let's take an example. Let's say that when the embryo is forming, you get genetics, DNA, RNA from the mother and from the father. And if both of them had, for example, uh, type 1 diabetes, it means they may have a genetic coding sequence that tells certain cells in the pancreas, an organ in the uh, abdomen that produces insulin, not to produce insulin. So the sequence has been disrupted by a genetic abnormal coding. Now, sometimes you can have uh, problems with diabetes because of environment or toxins or other things, but for the most part in the type 1 diabetes, it's genetic and it's about a sequence that tells these special cells not to produce insulin. You got that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So now let's say we were able to take a small virus that, that we were able to control its genetic sequencing in its, in its small little aspect of, of what it is. And we were able to introduce that virus, which we were able to remove all of the bad things so it didn't get you sick or anything like that. But it, all it had in it was a mission to go into the pancreas, find the cells that have the incorrect genetic sequencing and change that sequence. Yeah. And if they could do that and then the the next set of cells that are produced have a new sequence and that set of cells suddenly is producing insulin, that means we have potentially cured diabetes and people will not need insulin anymore yeah. because we can except for, you know, other types of cases. But Hmm. this is what I mean by gene therapy. So you take a virus, you introduce a sequence in it, and it goes into the body and then it will change sequences that are causing harm or other problems. And then the person is healed. Now this is obviously going to become extremely controversial also as we move forward, you know the ethics when we start looking, and we already know that there are genetically modified organisms in the plant and agriculture mm-hmm. and the uh, uh beef industry you know those those industries we 're already doing genetically modified work, and that 's how we 're doing it we 're introducing viruses into plants and cells that are designed to have a special sequence that will prevent them from being affected by this type of a weed killer or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you already see what kind of controversy we have about corn, for example, imagine where the controversy is going to go when we start really doing gene therapy.
0: So I have a question. Sure. Because, uh, in the beginning of, of this talk, you had said that, you know, we can see bacteria under a microscope, but we cannot see mm-hmm. the virus under a microscope because it's so small. It's nano proportions. So how is it that we're able, or the scientists are able to remove <laughs> the bad parts of the virus and be sure that it is the bad parts of the virus oh, before they pump it back into us.
1: <laughs> that's a great question. And and these are questions that are being asked by scientists and ethicists and physicians all around. But uh, the first part of your question is is very important in that when I said they can't be seen under a microscope, that's the normal microscope that we use in colleges and high school classrooms Mm. those are the light type of microscopes there's a newer type of microscope which is an electron microscope which Mm. is not so new anymore but these can see much deeper so we can get clear views of the viruses now under special scanning microscopes and also we've learned how to stain them so that they come up certain colors and so we can recognize different parts of that but that was a great question but even as we move forward that is going to be some of the difficult processes about doing viral and gene therapy for example in if i say to you we talk about uh viruses now that might cause cancers we're talking about the hpv virus you've heard of that the human papilloma virus
0: yes yes which
1: which uh, can cause potentially cervical cancer in a young woman. And we mm. also heard an actor talking about uh, uh, oral sex causing uh, a cancer in his throat due to an HPV, mm. the human virus. that was recently in the news, correct? Well, if we know that these uh, viruses exist and they get in the body, Perhaps we can then take a benign virus and put in a sequencing program that will either destroy the herpes-type virus or the human malma type virus or other viruses that might cause a cancer and change their sequencing so that they will either kill the virus or prevent it from changing into a mutation which will cause the cancer or take the cancer and cure the cancer. So that's another Whole area that we're going to be looking at with the gene therapy. It's fascinating. And of course, uh, you know, we talk about agriculture and medicine. There are going to be many possibilities. We have vaccines that we've been using for years to prevent polio and to prevent uh, a number of other diseases. We have the influenza vaccines every year that some people take. And again, these are great things, but because they're viruses, they have controversy, so there are a lot of people that don't believe in the vaccines, and there are a lot of people that uh, don't believe in a number of the things that they do. but in the meantime, there are also the scientists that are working very hard at looking at uh, how viruses can affect us and what we can do to use a virus there's another There's another group. Uh, that's doing research, and I'm sure in many different places, but I'm aware of this one only right now, Uh, University of Washington in St. Louis, where they're actually looking at and found viruses that exist within the gut of humans. So, you know, we always talk about on this show, the bacteria in the gut. We all Mm -hmm. know there's bacteria and we all take periodically our probiotics and eat yogurts and things like that. And we talk about the immune system and all of this. So we've known that bacteria exist in our gut for many years and they allow the uh, intestines and the areas in the intestine when they take the food to break it down, absorb it, digest it, and also to prevent certain toxins from coming into the body. But what we're finding now is that there are also viruses in the intestinal tract and these viruses and bacteria in our intestines seem so far in early testing to show that they actually are working together to improve the immune system. So I'm very excited about finding that kind of information out. It's also the studies they were doing, they were doing with identical twins and they were taking parents and they were looking at stool samples, just to go over this for a few few more moments. They look at the stool samples of the identical twins and the mothers over a year period, taking stool samples a uh, number of times a year. And first they looked at the bacteria and they saw that the bacteria were all relatively similar. You know, the two twins and the mother all had some kind of a similar colony growth of the different species of bacteria. But what they're also finding, surprisingly, was that each group, uh, each person actually had individual viruses. So their own pattern of viruses, almost as unique as a fingerprint. Hmm. And as we find this out, we're finding that not necessarily are all viruses unfriendly. There's um, friendly, friendly viruses that are out there. And this is good for us to know because this may help us. In learning more about our immune system, which is such an important part of life for us, because that's what keeps us from getting ill and and dying of simple parasites and bacteria and viruses.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so. Any thoughts so far well, on what I, we're talking about? That that is. Uh, see, it's back to balance again. Uh, <laughs> are viruses good or not? I don't know because it's about balance. And I guess right there, they have found the balance. You know, where it's working together with the good bacteria in our system. It's uh, interesting. See, they are human after all. There is the good and bad, right?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know about human, but they are a living, potentially living organism. Not all living organisms are human. But also, interestingly, um, when the scientists and the microbiologists do other types of studies in nature... They find, for example, in in sea animals and in land animals, I believe that there are bacteria and viruses also, but they don't necessarily work together as a team as they do in uh, in the human. Now, this will certainly over time we we will learn a lot more about this, but um, I believe that this is going to give us the information that we need as we move forward in medicine in terms of health and healing, giving us more information and ways on looking at things to help people get cured from diseases and even to prevent diseases, which we really like to do on Magical Medical Tour. Mm -hmm. We love the prevention aspect and the preparation aspect. So one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about viruses today was that Every once in a while, you know that we hear about different viruses that come out that start going around the world. If you remember back in, I think it was 2003, mm-hmm. there was the SARS mm-hmm. virus, the yes. severe acute respiratory syndrome virus. Yes,
0: yes. Remember that
1: went around the world and everybody's wearing masks and people were dying and they were not eating pigs and looking out for chickens and all sorts of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Oh, yes. Yes, very much so. Well.
1: Well, I'm here to let you know that the Center for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization have recognized that there's a new virus out and it's very early. It first made its way uh onto the planet into humans in April of 2012. And this happened I believe somewhere in Jordan or in Saudi Arabia actually. And they are calling it, it originally looked a, like a cousin to the SARS virus. They were able to see the virus and they look at the genetic sequencing and uh, they saw that it was related, but not quite the same as the, uh, as the virus that we recognized as SARS. And what's happening now is it started in the Middle East. So they are calling it the M- Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Virus, or the M-E-R-S, mm. and it's also called a co-virus, C-O, and then it's the virus, and the co stands for a recognition of corona, and if you can see that on the, uh, the cells themselves, these little thorns look like crowns, so mm. that's why they call it the corona uh, virus, and oh. these these viruses, and you can see the stains there to make them even brighter, it makes it, uh, they, they attach into a cell, a regular human host cell, and they then start, ch- start changing the DNA and RNA of that cell to produce themselves. And that's when they become more like a living organism. So what we're seeing now is... When you and I and other people are reading books and going to movies and having dinners and going to work and doing television shows, there are people out there, scientists, epidemiologists, virologists, and people from the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization who are very involved right now in this process. They see the potential for a new virus, and it's, and it's starting to spread uh, out of the Middle East, it's going around the Middle East, but they've just seen, I think we had a map to where some of the places they mm-hmm. were uh, showing, they've now seen uh, evidence that the virus has reached France and Italy and also the United Kingdom multiple and Tunisia, so mm-hmm. a number of other places. So it's starting to spread around the world, and <clears throat> at this point... The Center for Disease Control is not putting out any advisories to say, don't go to these places. It's not at that level yet, but it's just an idea. And as part of a public service for a magical medical tour and yoga hub, just to keep people involved and let them know if they're planning trips to those areas, they should be aware of that at this time. There is no vaccine going on right now, but all of these epidemiologists and virologists and, and health uh, Concerned people are there studying this, and every chance they get, they're trying to figure out, for example, where it's coming from. And in trying to figure out where it's coming from, the, the sequences that seem to be showing up in the virus are related to a sequence of viruses that are similarly found in a bat hmm. that's, uh, that, they, that they have in the Middle East. So the theory now is that it's coming from an animal source, a bat, and it's moving. And the question is when it becomes human-to-human transmission, and now it already has. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's progressing along its path. They were trying to figure out what is the process, where are the clusters, what's going on, and can we eradicate it before it gets too big and gets spread? They thought for a while that it might be... Uh, that the bats are uh, spreading feces on dates
0: Ooh. and
1: that it's being spread by dates. But that doesn't seem to be proving out, or at least not yet, because part of the theory right now is that it's not really date season, so uh, it shouldn't be spread that way. But it, for whatever reason, it has now sequenced itself and moved to a place where we have human-to-human transmission. And at this moment in time... Uh, it's been found in a number of countries, as I said, and there are so far 64 cases of the of the MERS, M-E-R-S virus, 64 cases, and about 38 people, that's more than half now, have actually died from it. Mm. And that, that data is as of um, yesterday, June 17th, 2013.
0: Mm. So, so it's not hit the U.S. yet, or North America
1: it has it has at least not been reported in the U.S. in North right. America. But because people travel, because yes. there are people going to the Middle East all the time and then coming back here or leaving the Middle East and coming here for the first time, or travelers that are traveling to parts of the Middle East and then here and then back home to other places, most likely it will be reported here. So what's happening is all of the, the – through the CDC – And the World Health Organization, they start setting up programs immediately within state and local health facilities so that if a case comes in or a potential case comes in uh, where a person becomes uh, what they call PUI, patient under investigation, Hmm. uh, that's how they start gathering their data. So if people start, in other words, if somebody comes in uh, to an emergency department or to a clinic with a cough, a slight fever, maybe a little over 100, uh, respiratory distress, and they've just recently traveled to the Middle East or been exposed to someone that they know had this virus, then that person would become a patient under investigation. And they would do testing on them, viral testing, to see whether or not that virus is in them. And if it's not, then we report that. And if it is, then we have our first citing here in the united states and from there the cdc and the world health organization state and local and federal agencies start reporting and advising people and depending on how bad it gets and how virulent uh it gets uh we do more and more things uh you know then vaccines start getting uh made, and then people start panicking about there's not enough vaccine. When is it going to get to me? Do I wear a mask? What do I do? And then the other people start talking about vaccines are no good. They're going to cause more harm. Don't take the vaccine anyway. Just do this or do that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, again, more controversy within the process of the program.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so, so how, how would one know if they have it glenn i mean it's it's respiratory and we all get coughs and colds and now it's uh allergy season here <laughs> in California you know right uh, and uh i mean what what are the main signs that one would look for without creating panic where we do get short of breath <laughs> short of breath. Right.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's very difficult because it starts out as a virus. And let me say right from the beginning that in some cases, as I said, 38 people out of 64 died, mm-hmm. but many of them just got better. So there are milder versions of this. And this has to do back with what I spoke about maybe earlier with genetic uh, diversity in our uh, species where some people have stronger immune systems. And again, we always look to the people that have the weakest immune system, people immunocompromised, people on chemotherapy, elderly people, the very young people. So what do we look for? We look for somebody with a respiratory problem who has a cough, who has a fever, who doesn't have any history of another problem. In other words, if a person mm-hmm. had tuberculosis, they already knew it, or they already had a pneumonia, or they already had a lung disease like a cancer or a uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So if you don't have anything else and you have this, those are those are the symptoms. And what you have to do is have your own natural um, intuition that says, you know, when you get a cold, you know, oh, I don't feel too good, but and you rest for a few days and you start feeling better and then you're better. So it's, it's the idea that when you get that cold, not to go, oh, I have MERS or I have SARS or something like that. It's just to be aware of it and to uh, watch carefully. And if it doesn't seem to get better, if it seems to be lingering more than it should with the common uh, respiratory, upper respiratory rhinoviruses, et cetera, that we see and some of the allergies that you're used to, then you report it to your doctor. And the doctor at that point uh, will do the appropriate testing to make sure whether it's just a simple virus or the MERS virus or something uh, completely different than that. Mm. Mm. So those are the things that you have to do. And they are—they have developed some tests already that can be used to, uh, to recognize the virus, which will help in the reporting of the process. So within that, uh, there's also, uh, are there any other kind of things that you wanted to talk about with um. the...
0: A a uh, question came in, uh, what are the best defenses against these viruses while traveling?
1: uh, Excellent question. Uh, First of all, to be aware of when you are traveling, you are at more risk anyway for uh, symptoms and strains of things that are not in your uh, normal environment. So if you first be aware of where you're traveling and if they have a hi- a history of something, check with the CDC. Um, we had a, a program uh, on travel medicine that you could look to. There are lots of uh, information there and websites, so people should always be aware. The second thing is I always believe that... You should speak with your doctor before you travel and have medications ready in case of certain problems, especially if you do have problems already. If you don't have problems, then you can take some general things, maybe an antibiotic, something for nausea, something for diarrhea, a few other things. But if you have your own illnesses, make sure you have enough medication there. And then I always try and remain as clean as possible. I bring a surgical mask with me uh, when I travel. Uh, and if i'm on a plane and i hear somebody coughing uh, i will put the mask on and just try and help a little bit certainly as we learned earlier with these nanometered uh viruses that are so small a billion could fit on a meter stick even the normal surgical masks they can get through that but sometimes it helps a little bit stay clean eat clean foods uh wash stay healthy don't overdo anything uh, you know, sometimes you're traveling and you're on a different time zone and and your circadian rhythms are off and you're eating food that isn't your normal food. Some people we know even bring their own food on travels. Uh, so these are some of the things that you can do. And just be aware if you find that there's something going on and you're not feeling well, check in with a local uh, health clinic or physician to see what's going on and and be seen uh, quickly if you don't feel it's something normal? Uh, Mm -hmm. That was a good question. And there may be some other things that people have as ideas to do as you're traveling. But I also, that's a great segue for me in the sense that one of the things that I wanted to talk about today also as another part of Inside the Doctor's Bag is how do you stay healthy uh, and protect yourself from these viruses? Uh, so it's it's always about eating well, exercising well, uh, sleeping well, and reducing stress. And that's what I wanted to talk about today for a moment. But before I talk about that, I did want to say one other thing. Uh, sometimes these viruses, especially the MERS virus, we don't know totally how it's being transmitted yet, although most of the time it's usually through uh, coughing or, or droplets in the air, aerosol droplets, or shaking hands with someone who just coughed. And so it's very important to make sure that you keep your face and nose clean and sometimes a neti pot or washing out the insides of your nasal passages is helpful. But one of the things I wanted to talk about today a little bit, and we talk about this at the end of each show, you always talk about the metaphor square breath that uh, I teach people. And that is what I would like to talk about, uh, which I haven't done that on one of our shows, and the reason for talking about it today is to kind of tie it into the viral process and look at another way to help and be helpful. And I'm going to add something that I haven't added to the metaphor square breath before uh, in today's little talk. But just to let everyone know, if you go to my website at Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, Wallman, wollma dot GlennWallman.com, if you subscribe to my site, then you will get a gift of a video which uh, completely describes the Wallman metaphor square breath uh, in detail. So I would recommend everyone doing that. But I will also then, if you subscribe, you'll get information on this show and other things that we're doing. But I did want to talk about the the metaphor square breath because I uh, developed that for myself. Uh, after working in an emergency department and realizing that sometimes things could be pretty stressful and I needed to be unstressed quickly to make important decisions. So uh, I would say to people that through my knowledge of neurophysiology and the endocrine system and biochemistry and martial arts and meditation, breathing is a very important part of everything we do. And in the Wallman metaphor square breath, if you can imagine or see the picture of a square in the bottom left-hand corner is uh, an A, and then up in the left-hand corner is B, then over is C, and then at the bottom right is D. This is the metaphor square breath. If you think about it, when a person uh, is born, the first thing that they do in life uh, that declares that they're an individual is to take a, a deep breath and that's inspiration, and we make that inspirational. So the first part is to take in a nice deep breath. And I talk about it because it's a it's a four square, then everything has to do with fours. So we take in a breath for, at the beginning, four seconds. But as you get better and better at the program, you could take it for a count of four, so you can make it last longer or shorter. But as you're learning this for the first time, just do four seconds. So you take in a deep breath and it's recommended to take in the breath through your nose. And then uh, when you exhale out through your mouth, but if you can't do that and you're not comfortable with that, just breathe any way that you're comfortable. And it's important to make the inhale last for the entire count of four. So you don't breathe in the first second and then hold it for four seconds. So you breathe in for four seconds And then you get up to the portion where it's the B. And at that point, from B to C, you actually hold the breath for another count of four or for four seconds. And at that point, all of the oxygen is being transmitted from the breath that comes in through the trachea into the lungs and gets uh, taken into the cells and brought to cells all around the body. So that's a very important part, that holding of four seconds. When you get to the next part, the C, you exhale. And again, you do this for four seconds or of four. And again, you don't try and exhale the entire breath in the first second and then hold it. You try and make it even and smooth and very relaxed. And you work your way down to D. Now, when you're exhaling, this is a point where, uh, you're helping the body get rid of toxins, uh, carbon dioxide and other toxins. It also, on another note, when people are exhaling, uh, We've done studies on people that meditate, and people get into more meditative states during an exhale rather than an inhale. And that's why people, or at least theoretically, that's why people chant. That's why people uh, pronounce things over a period of time repeatedly, repeatedly. Those are all forms of exhaling. Once you exhale everything, and this is the critical point, this is when you go from the bottom right, where it's D, back to A. This is where you hold the exhale. So after you've exhaled everything, don't immediately take in a deep breath. This will allow you to get to another higher state of meditation, and a, and it produces hormones that allow you to relax more and therefore reduce the stress. And again, from a metaphoric point of view, We talked about uh, the first thing a person does when they come into the world is take a deep breath. The last person, the last thing that a person does when they leave the world is exhale and not take in any more breath. So the whole metaphor is it's a life cycle. And we have four sides to it. Inhale, hold, exhale, hold. We do it four times. So we go through a sequence of doing it four times at Time of four seconds, or count of four on each portion, and then the thing that I always suggest is to do it four times per day. So I wonder, Christina, do you think maybe we should do one to help people uh, get a better picture of it, or do you think that covered it?
0: Oh no, I think you should do one.
1: Okay, then let's. (laughs) There's nothing like like doing, right? (laughs) Doing. We are. Well, we're human beings, so we should be, but we should also be human doings,
0: doings. so we should do.
1: <laughs> so with between being and doing, let's do one. So as the representative of every person, Christina, I'm going to teach it to you, even though I know you're already uh, a user and a convert. <laughs> so the first thing to do, uh, remember, breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, And if you can, try and use abdominal breathing. If you can't breathe in through your nose or out through your mouth and you can't do abdominal breathing, it's just as important just to breathe. So let's just relax for a moment, Christina. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then let all of your breath out. Okay, now hold it for a moment and get ready. We're going to start and I will count and we'll do it four times. So the first part will be a breath in for four seconds. Ready, breathe in. Exhale, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, in, hold, out, hold, in, then at this time you just start breathing quietly and this is a good thing to do when you are going to meditate before an exercise when you need to relax calm down for a few minutes you can do it as many times in the day as you want and it's a good idea as you start learning it to maybe take your pulse before you do it or check in with yourself and see if you're very nervous and then at the end of the um Sequence of four rounds of breathing the four square. See how you feel differently. It definitely works. Now there's, how did you feel after that?
0: Oh, good. I love this. I usually do it up to eight counts now though. (laughs) Yeah, It's amazing how, how you, it's almost like a muscle. It begins to stretch and, and you are able to actually inhale because you're conscious. You, You are able to inhale and extend it longer and hold longer and, and uh, it's uh, a great feeling because it completely grounds the body. It's wonderful.
1: It grounds the body. And if you get into a meditative state with it and start visualizing it, the toxins going away, the oxygen coming in, the healing processes, all of that is really beneficial for, for everyone to do that. And mm-hmm. I really recommend it. And so
0: simple, now, I would say- Glenn.
1: It's very simple. Now, you know, I'll say when I talk with meditators, there are people that speak about different types of breath. Breathe in, uh, hold it, breathe out twice as long, breathe out five times as long. Uh, There are a number of different breaths, and I'm certainly not saying that all of them don't work. This seems to be the one that works best for me. It's the easiest to remember because it has all the parts to it. You should not avoid the holding on the part where you inhale or the part where you hold it on the exhale those are very beneficial and they're not always covered in some of the others not that they don't get the same results in terms of meditative states if you're doing it for a meditative state I usually start with my four square breath and then once I reach the fourth one and finish it then I go into a different type of breathing where I just breathe in and out quietly and then This is the part where I want to bring up something a little bit new that I haven't talked about before, but another benefit, and I'm going to try and tie it into our virus talk today, (laughs) is that, um, interestingly, we always listen to people. And when they're teaching us to meditate, they say, um, feel the breath, be the breath, you know, be aware of the breath you know, feel it going into your lungs and all of that. You've, you've been involved in that,
0: right? Yes, absolutely. So many forms of it as as you're right. There's so many forms of breathing for meditation. Um, But I don't, I don't use yours for meditation though.
1: (laughs) No, I, I don't use mine for meditation either. I use mine as a, as a transition to go from my attention in the outside world to going inside, I use that to start my meditation, and then once i 've calmed myself and I know that i 'm prepared for meditation, I do go into a different breathing, as yes, i said yeah, so I use that, and i rec I really do recommend as a transition, mm-hmm. not necessarily for the meditation, but as a transition to go from regular breathing into meditative breathing, the metaphor square breath is is really good. I think if you try to do that. Uh, Next time, you might see some different results, but Mm -hmm. we don't know. Everybody's different. As as we learned today with uh, viruses, it creates uh, diversity. (laughs) So you and I are different in that respect. But one of the things that I wanted to tie in today is when you're doing the metaphor square breath, aside from all the other things, especially at this time when we're talking about the viruses, is to concentrate on the sound of your breath. Now, most people don't do that because they're busy being the breath or the warmth of the breath or something else. But I want you, and this person, this will go back to the question you asked and that the person that wrote in asked a little bit. When you're doing the breathing in and out, listen to the actual breath, A normal breath should be very clear without any other noises in it, just an in-breath and an out-breath, like it's all the same or it's all quiet, it's all flowing, it's beautiful. But if you hear either a wheezing or a whistling or a crackling or a, a bubbling, some of these sounds could be the first indicators that you are developing a respiratory problem. Now, this may happen, nothing to do with the virus. It might happen if you develop asthma or if you have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or you're just starting to get it. If you pick this up early by listening very carefully from the very beginning of the breath, the inhale, all the way to when it stops, and then Mm. from the very beginning of the exhale, all the way to when it stops, if you start hearing noises that are not the normal noises you're used to, then that is an indicator that something is going on inside your lungs. And it may be the very first indicator long before there's a fever, long before there's an x-ray, long before there's a cough or uh, spitting up blood or something like that. So this is something that I'm adding to this today, only for the uh, magical medical tour people and the yoga hub people to know is that The metaphor square breath has a diagnostic capability to it.
0: (laughs) Great. That's a great point. Thank you, Glenn.
1: Yeah, You're welcome. Now, I I believe that in one of our talks, you talked about having asthma as a child. So you know what that wheezing sounds like.
0: (laughs) Sounds like, feels like, yes. Feels
1: like all of that. Right. So it becomes one of those things where you may have the ability to pick up different sounds that you can then share with your doctor and the doctor may uh, be able to find something uh, before it becomes something very critical mm-hmm. and be, can be treated more easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about the virus. We've talked about viruses. We've talked about the MERS virus, the one that's out there. And again, no panic at this point. Uh, it's not in this country. We may find out exactly what's causing it and eradicate it before it ever gets, gets past uh, 64 people but just in case we've already talked about what to do a little bit staying healthy and we talked about the metaphor square breath as part of stress reduction and things like that anything else you want to talk
0: about today oh well we could always carry on and on glenn <laughs> sure okay. um glenn i i there's something that you usually um share with us that is so important about any kind of illness that uh, we could be around, which is washing your hands, uh, keeping the hands washed. I, I know you spoke about the surgical mask and things like that, but some of those simple things like keep those hands washed. And and I don't know, how do you feel about those um, antibacterial hand washes with all the alcohol? I mean, there's been a lot of controversy about that now.
1: Yeah, I think the easiest thing, you know, we can get into, you could end up, especially if you're traveling, you could have an entire bag filled with (laughs) all sorts of things. You know, this, it it almost becomes like Alice in Wonderland. One pill to make you small, one to make you tall, one to keep your hands clean. Uh, I think the best thing to do, soap and water usually, sometimes if you want, a little bit of alcohol might do it. But again, uh, you also have protective bacteria on your hands, so the, and those work to prevent certain things from breaking through the skin barriers, so mm. you just want to keep clean and and when you're and I think I said this, but just in case I didn't, and I'm glad you brought it up again when you are cleaning your hands the way if if you just kept things on your hands and had the virus on your hands, nothing may happen. The problem is is that you then take your hands after shaking hands with someone who just coughed has the virus on their hands. Now you picture this virus or many viruses on your hands (laughs) and uh, then you uh, rub your face or put your hand to your mouth or to your nose. And that's where it gets in. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: It goes in through the nasal mucosa or the oral mucosa and it starts setting up camp. Mm. And then it starts colonizing. And when it gets to critical mass, it's in your body and it's producing, it enters cells, it changes the virus sequencing and the uh, genetic sequencing. And causes the body to react, and hopefully the body's immune system has enough recognition and can do it in, uh, in the right amount of time where the cold or the virus just lasts for two days or three days or a week or a week and a half to two weeks, and then it's gone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's when the immune system doesn't work on it. But yes, definitely cleaning your hands.
0: Yeah, I I know some body workers that will not shake people's hands. <laughs> They'll hug them before yeah. they shake their hands because of that same reason. It's like they they feel that if they shake someone's hand and because they're just about to go into a massage, even though they wash their hands, they don't even want anything on their hands, you know, away from that clean oil.
1: <laughs> yeah, so. I agree. I I see that a lot and I I honor people like that, especially people that um may feel sick on their own. I love seeing people walking around with a surgical mask. Uh, To me, it's a high level of civility. You know, maybe they're doing it because they're trying to be protective and not catch something. But I always like to believe that maybe they have something Mm -hmm. and they are trying to keep me from getting it. So I honor them for that. And when I work with people that uh, have cancers and are on chemotherapeutic medications yes. and their immune systems are down. I honor when they don't want to shake hands with people. I, I really do.
0: Mm-mm. Sometimes
1: um, we shake elbows or something.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's uh, cute. <laughs> um, Glenn, where where can we pick up the surgical masks? I mean, are they available in drugstores now? Uh, yeah,
1: you can go to most drugstores. And again, these are specific types of Uh, These are simple surgical masks. When you get into certain types of diseases, they require special filters. Mm -hmm. So the regular surgical masks that you see on ER or hospital shows, those are pretty good, but they're not going to stop every little uh, nanovirus from getting through them. So there are special filter masks that are usually harder to get, but sometimes you can call uh, a local public health department, And if there is an outbreak going on, they may be supplying them. I know up Mm -hmm. here where I am, we are part of uh, an emergency response team. And when we've had certain outbreaks or when we've had bad fires going on, we set up little tables in different communities out in front of popular food stores and things like that, Mm -hmm. giving out masks to people. But for the general mask, you could probably go to the drugstore. You can even possibly go... There are some other types of masks. You can go to home improvement places and hardware stores where yes. a lot of people work, you know, where they're working with lumber or people that are painters that are working with oil. Sometimes there are, there are much more sophisticated masks with better filters.
0: Yes, yes. for chemicals. Will,
1: I have a question. Yeah, what about like work, using huh? a bandana in the event that you don't have a mask? Would a bandana, you know, even stop anything or is that almost useless? Uh, Well, there's a few things. First of all, again, it could be controversial because many people might think you're about to rob them or you're the Lone (laughs) Ranger or something. Second, it could be a a fashion statement if it's a very nice bandana. Uh, And third, it will probably help similarly to the uh, regular surgical mask. It certainly might help in certain cases. However, I would want to... Uh, make sure that that bandana is not one that you've been using to blow your nose for the last two (laughs) weeks and it's been in your pocket. Now you take it out to, uh, you know, protect yourself from viruses. So yes, it will help a little bit, uh, but it won't be as good as a, as a, uh, one of the real specific type of mask. But Mm. if I had no other choice, I would put a bandana on. Mm. In fact, There are many times that I will just, um, you know, slip my shirt over my face if I have just a few minutes or, you know, there are different things, a handkerchief or something like that. Yeah, it definitely would help, especially if you're in a place where you're really uh, exposed to something and you're about to get out of there. It it limits your exposure a little bit, and I think anything you can do to eliminate or limit exposure is an excellent um, gambit.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. would that no, be similar to
1: uh like in a fire they say if you you know you can take like a wet cloth or a napkin and you can wet it would does the water help anything like with smoke it helps but for viruses if i'm on a plane should i grab a napkin and douse it with water and hold it to my face is that something that's probably not going to help that not na- hmm. not necessarily the the paper type napkin but uh and again you don't really have to wet it in this particular case uh uh The bandana would help a little while, but then after you get off the plane, very good idea to do the other things we spoke about. Go and wash your face, wash your hands, and maybe at some point during the day or before you go to sleep that night, uh, do a neti pot or Mm -hmm. wash out a little bit of the insides of your uh, nasal cavities, the nares, and up into the nasal cavities and gargle a little bit maybe those things. Because those are the areas where the virus, as I said, sets up camp and starts to colonize. So if you could wipe that out and wash that away quickly, you may never get the virus. That that kind of technique has worked for me through my many years in the emergency department. Uh, there were times kids were coughing in my face and during flu seasons. And because I followed those rules, uh, I rarely got sick. I rarely picked up the viruses. And of course, I did the other things, too which were to try and stay healthy, you know, eating right and exercising and keeping stress down and sleeping well and all the other things. But that's a good question also,
0: mm. you know,
1: from a practical point of view, anything you can do, keep those little nanovirus particle, non-living, living, uh, things. Good,
0: bad, ugly. Uh, from,
1: <laughs> yeah, the good, the bad and the ugly. There you go. So as I said, we're coming to the end, I think. Yes. And I have a, a health tip. Oh, good. That I would like to share with everyone if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely. I went to a, <laughs> I went to a uh, public screening the other night of a movie called following the ninth in the footsteps of Beethoven's ninth symphony. It's by a Kerry Candell. He's an independent filmmaker, and he's looking for funding for his film. And it's basically a film that shows the global impact of Beethoven's ninth on the world in different places where major things happen, like China and Tiananmen Square in Berlin when the wall came down, in Chile uh, when a dictator took over and was torturing people, in Japan and a number of other parts of the world where they play the ninth and they sing uh, Schiller's Ode to Joy. And in this movie, it was just fascinating. And I started thinking about the Ode to Joy, which I love. It's one of my favorite pieces in Beethoven's Ninth. So please, all of you German speaking people, excuse me for my attempt at German, but at one part of the Ode to Joy, it says, Allah Menschen werden Brüder. And it means all people are connected. And so, what my tip for the day is that I think everyone should take a moment out of each day and consider an ode to joy.
0: Mm. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woman. That is a a lovely moment that we should all take. You're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And let that manifest, (laughs) let that become viral. (laughs) <laughs> Let that go viral. Let we are that go all viral. connected.
1: I like that. That's beautiful. Uh, I, and at this time, Christina, I would like to thank our special guest, uh, myself, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and my special doctor's bag. Uh, and I would like to say thank you to you, of course, and to Segovia and all of the Yoga Hub people for putting the show together under sometimes viral circumstances. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing each of you again uh, next week as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Glenn Woolman. That was Good fun. Every time we climb into that doctor's bag of yours, we always uh, <laughs> have a great time. And uh, thank you, Segovia and the Yogav team for making all this possible. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. May I remind you to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman and of course through his own site, glennwoolman.com where we encourage you to learn more about his Metaphor Square Breath, as you might have done today, and uh, continue to practice it, and you will see wonderful results. We're always grateful for any feedback, so please be sure to take a moment and give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you again for joining us. Until next time, namaste. YHTV's Trinity of Life. Come join me, Christina Suzama, as I journey to find the many modalities that support individuals, from children to adults to elders, with topics ranging from health and wellness, meditation and inspirational stories. I invite you to visit yogahub.tv every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern.